Welcome to the Dash Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Gimmage, and joining me today is one of my favorite guests, Lloyd Knight, an absolute turnaround specialist. He's been all around the map, currently at Tinley Accelerated Schools in Indianapolis. He's been out in Chicago, Louisiana, Virginia, North Carolina. He does it all, and he's got a brand new book that's out as well. So I'm excited to talk to you about his book. And before we get going, um, I have to let you know to go to TreyGamage.com right now so you can purchase my copy of the book, Every Decision Counts, Eight Lessons I Wish They Taught Me in School, and um, subscribe to the Dash Podcast. But I don't even want to wait with all the intro this time. I just want to get to my man, Lloyd Knight. I'm blessed. <laughs> my life story told through mentorship. Man, talk to me about this new project, and welcome back for the third episode, third interview. Oh, man. You know, I had to hit you as soon as I was going to drop this book. Man, I, I just feel so blessed to be a part of um, this podcast, you know, Trey, I consider you a great friend. And uh, we have definitely all partners in um, trying to make sure we do the best we can for our youth uh, within Absolutely. our inner cities and rural areas and such. So um, the premise of um, I'm blessed is pretty much just uh, stories from my past in which God placed people in my life mm -hmm. uh, to to make sure that I was able to get to the areas that I needed to get to um, as far as education, uh, as far as athletics, as far as just growth and growing up, and as far as professionally in life. Mm -hmm. uh, being in the, inner, in the inner city education system for many years, you find out that so many of our young black men and black women are lacking the role models needed in their lives to be able to really, really make it. Yeah. Um, and in the book, you know, I refer to it many times as game, you know, just that person in your life who can give you those tips that are going to get you from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. So um, the first two people I've discussed in the book are my mom and dad. Um, my father, you know, he passed away when I was 12 years old of a sudden heart attack. He had mm -hmm. a huge influence on my life. And my mother, my Korean stepmother, um, she raised me until I was 37, 36. Wow. <laughs> and um, growing up with a Korean stepmother from pretty much age, from age five to 36, you know, I grew up differently. You know, I had different expectations. And, mm -hmm. and both of those interactions truly had like the biggest like impact on my life. Um, my why, as far as like why I'm in education is centered around the fact that my mother um, and father died so young wow. and that I ended up, you know, growing up in high school and going through middle school um, without any real African-American role models in my life hmm. uh, until I got to high school where, and he's a major subject in the book, uh, Juan Jackson. He's a fraternity brother of mine, but uh, he came to me one day and he said, Lloyd, you know, if you really want to uh, go to college, you're going to have to get straight A's. You're going to have to run a 14-2 in the sprint hurdles. You're going to have to run 54 in the 400-meter hurdles. You're going to have to, yeah, you're going to have to score touchdowns, and you're going to have to start on the varsity basketball team. And in the book, I'm very explicit in saying the only thing that scared me was the straight A's because I'd never mm. done before. Not only had I never gotten straight A's, I never even had straight B's. Wow. But he was the first person in my life the first person in my life that ever believed in me enough to set an expectation. Wow. You need to be truly great. And 
what came of that was three months later when I was called to the varsity head coach's office and I sat down with him and he told me, I'm so disappointed in you. Hmm. And I said, why? He pulled out a report card. I had straight A's. And he said, how in the hell did you waste your potential in this way? Wow. And he set the tone for many more mentors to come. Um, and that's why my why of working in inner city schools is such um, something I'm so passionate about. You know, I feel like God's placed me everywhere he's been so I can be that mentor in other people's life, the way Juan Jackson was for me and the way countless other mentors in the book um, were for me as well. Mm. Mm. I, I mean, I think that's so, so powerful, Lord, you know, and I can, I heard somebody say, Ed Tate, he's a former world champion of public speaking. He said, you connect the dots looking backwards, not looking forwards. So it's wow. when you get to those specific places or those milestones or those obstacles in life that you're able to look back and say, dang, this is where I came from all this way. You know, and, and what's amazing to me is, you know, we've had a couple conversations and, um, you know, hearing your journey again, I know you've told it to me before, but about your parents and about your stepmother, I mean, that's an embodiment of um, what a lot of our kids are going through. You know, maybe yeah. the story isn't exactly the same, but there's so many kids, black, white, brown, in our school district that have a similar experience. And when you're yeah. going through that, I mean, I grew up rich dad, poor dad type of situation. The mom didn't have much money. I didn't know it till I moved with my dad. You know, I, I, you don't know some of the things while they're happening to you, that you, you realize them after they're over. How did it feel as you were writing the book? I know you said you kind of had it written for a couple of years. As you were writing these stories, as you were expressing yourself, what kind of emotions came over you and kind of what kind of thoughts and feelings came to you uh, while you were in that process? You know, even you asking that question is just so on time because it's probably part of the reason why it took so long for me to afford to come out hmm. because the book for me is very revealing um, about my struggles and my journey um, yeah. in education. Um, writing the book, I mean, there were times I, I cried, mm -hmm. you know, because when you truly look back on how God has blessed you with these people to make sure that you, that, that you can make it, you know, it can, it can be a truly emotional thing when you really realize like, man, if, if, if God never put Rhonda Bell in my life, the first year that I was teaching, um, and if she wasn't a Delta and I wasn't a Q, maybe she's not even interested mm. and like really like rocking with me like that, you know, to have somebody who is across the hall, who is such a, such, just such an animal in the classroom of just preparedness <laughs> and just enthusiasm and tenacity of just wanting to just be this amazing teacher. I saw things in her room that like, I still haven't seen people do since uh -huh. we're talking about like 10, 11 years ago. Um, that writing about Rhonda and writing around about coach Jackson and Michael Campbell, you know, those were all situations in which I was placed in either self doubt. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I first met Rhonda Bell, I was interviewing for teaching jobs, but I didn't know I would be a good teacher. I had people tell me I wouldn't be a good teacher. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, when I met Michael Campbell, I had just gotten fired from my first inner city teaching job. And maybe I was, I was feeling like, man, I don't know if I can really do this. Right. You know yeah. Or it could be where like Juan Jackson, where I was in my seat, I was in the summer of my senior year 
and I had no college prospects and I had a 1.6 GPA mm. and I had to have straight A's or I wouldn't qualify for any scholarship. Yeah. And, you know, instead of allowing me to fall, there was always someone who was willing to grab me by my neck and tell me, yo, man, you ain't got a choice. You're too special. You're too handsome. You're too smart. Yeah. That, that you, you, you have to make it. And I'm not going to let you stand in the way of you yeah. being the great person that you're going to be one day. And that's why, like, you know, I also like Joe Budden. I listen to his podcast from time to time. He talks about giving people their flowers while they still smell them. Yes, yes. And for me, this is like a bouquet wow. of the flowers, mm. people who meant so much to wow. me. Because I, like I said, I know I would never be yeah. anything if these yeah. people were in my life. That's deep. That's deep, Lloyd. That's yeah. that's real. Well, and and I mean, so what came to mind as you were just talking <laughs> now is, do you think about how you've paid that mentorship forward? I know mm. I've had conversations with you about students that you've worked yeah. with, and I I know how your students gravitate towards you. Have yeah. you thought about that you you may have? four or five kids that got a chapter to write about how you've helped them in their life? Yeah, so I do. I did pick two student subjects um, for the second half of the book. And like I said, there's so many students I could write stories about. Yeah. But I wanted to pick two students in particular. Um, one was uh, is Malik Thomas, who was um, a student in my final year in the classroom in the All Girl Gardens Housing Projects of Chicago. And this young man was about 5'8", at least 240, mm. and was like in sixth grade. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, boy. yeah. And, you know, the thing about the gardens is that, like, that section was, at the time when I was there, was rated the second most dangerous neighborhood <clears throat> in Chicago. So, like, in a place where people from the outside looking in right. is a dangerous place. This was the number two mm. out of all those neighborhoods, right? Mm. Had about 6,000 people, but had like 2,000 murders. Dang. But it wasn't like, but it, but it wasn't like the people in the, the, the neighborhood. It was always people number from two. outside yeah. coming in. But, you know, the love that I felt oh, every day there mm. is like unmatched. And yeah. like, you know, I saw some of the craziest things in my life there where like there was one time I remember we had to lock down the building cause it was like a literal shootout outside the, like right, right across the street, mm. not with two people who were criminals. It was the cops wow. shooting at someone wow. across the street from the school. So to say that Malik grew up in interesting circumstances would be the understatement of it. Mm -hmm. And this young man, um, as soon as he knew how much I loved him and how much I loved his class. Wow. And I would tell them that math is life. Or I was a math teacher in my last year class. Math is life or death. Mm. You will learn this or where are you going to end up? Wow. And then I would tell, I, I was upfront with my fitness is graders. Yeah. The city says that only 10% of y'all are going to get past the ninth grade. How do you feel about that? Mm. Right. The city says that even if you get past there, even less of you are going to actually go to college. How do you feel about that? Where do all the people go who don't go to school? 
right? And my mind has shifted to a bit as far as like career technical education and stuff like that and different pathways. But back then, that message resonated right. with Malik. Right. He played basketball and I coached him um, as hard as I coached any varsity kids when I was a vars varsity assistant and JV basketball coach. And the one story I, I, I didn't tell in the book that I'll, I'll drop here is that, you know, Malik um, was a kid who really wore his heart on his sleeve. Like mm -hmm. He hated losing. And, you know, we made it to the championship game of our region. So, like, there's, like, eight regions in Chicago. We made it to the championship game. And we had never had a team before, right? Wow. So we start the game. We blew the first team out. You had to play two games one, one um, day. We blew the first team out. And we're playing this team. I think it was West Pullman. And they mm -hmm. had this little guy, man. He was hitting running runners from three-point range, right? They were, they were good. But they didn't give us a fair shot. And I can never forget Malik running up to me crying. Wow. And telling me, Mr. Knight, the ref said, stop acting like I'm not giving y'all any calls. Y'all nothing but some garbage trash anyway. Mm. And they said that to him. He, the ref said that to him. And at that moment, I felt very helpless because I, I didn't know what to do. You know, I, I could go crazy, get kicked out of the game, and I guess yeah. we'll never be in the CPS league again. I could confront that referee myself, but, like, am I ready to, like, fight him in this gym, you know? <laughs> so he allowed me to lead him out of the gym at the end of the game, and we got on the bus and went home. And mm. we discussed it later on. But, you know, the thing about Malik at the end of the day, he found himself, and I won't speak too, too, too tight on it, but he found himself in circumstances where he actually had to leave. Because mm -hmm. um, Malik liked to fight. He liked to knock out. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> knock out people in Chicago, they come back for guns. So yeah. he, got sent, he got sent to an all-white area in Minnesota. I guess his mother knew someone. And I didn't hear from Malik for about, hmm, let me see. I don't think I heard from Malik for about maybe he was in sixth grade back then, maybe eight years. Mm -hmm. And then one day on Facebook, I'm looking, typing. There it goes. And Malik pops up. Malik is like now like six foot three, 240 pounds still. He's like solid. One of the best rugby players in the United what? States. That okay. boy got into rugby. Okay. And when I said, man, I love you, man. I'm so proud of you. That young man said that the words I spoke to him as a teacher and as a coach still resonate to him in this uh, day. And that as much as anyone saved his life, he credited me and the people at CICS Lloyd Bond and mm. saving his life. And mm. um, when I dropped the book, he was one of the first people to comment and said, I know, basically, I know a minute and I can't wait to <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. So he, he for, for me, I think the reason why I picked him and I picked Pat in the book is that for me, stories of redemption mm. where a person doesn't use their poverty, as people doesn't use their parental situation as an excuse for them to pull themselves up and make themselves um able to have a great life yeah and um 
I, I, I feel like going back to my why is that every single time that you can save a young man mm. or young woman and you can convince them that going this path is better than the path that you may have already been on, yep. they're able to have a husband or a wife and kids and a job and a house and a car and they can look at you and be like, Mr. Knight, there's no, none of this without you. Mm -hmm. That is all the impact. That's all the roses I've ever wanted. Right. Because for me, it was never about the money. It was never about the pay. It was never about the success of turning around the schools. The true turnaround of these schools was every single time I was able to convince a student that we are in a building of academics mm. and that you are expected to be great. Wow. And when you convince someone, and sometimes it's happened, it's sad, because it ha sometimes it happens, I think I told you this before, like in 12th grade, and they realize for the first time, oh my God, I care about school. Sometimes it's too late. Yeah. But for, but for them, in that elementary setting, it was, there was enough time left for them to still really make great, great lives for themselves. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think you made a couple points there, Lloyd. And if I go back to the when I first started this podcast, the Dash, the topic was similar to what you're talking about. The Dash podcast was supposed to give you challenging, meaningful, significant conversation on how to make the pain in your life your platform for purpose. That's oh. what the first 72 episodes of this show was about. And actually, that's kind of where my, the framework for my book came from, from some of the different episodes. But I think that idea right there that your pain is your purpose. If you listen to what you said about your own story, about Malik's story, about your mentor's story, there's a, there's a deep pain that comes from um, whatever we're going through in life. But, yes. but if you can use that to your advantage, it turns into your fuel for purpose. And I, I want to use that to kind of carry over into why. You, you mentioned your why and your purpose a couple of times. And that's something that I actually find myself reflecting on a little bit more now in this coronavirus season. We're not in school. Yeah. We're not yeah. doing anything. So I'm, I'm really reflecting myself and I'm yeah. challenging um, the people in my network to reflect as well. Because I understand my why has changed. And then once I got married, once I got on city council, now mm -hmm. I'm, I'm building this guidance department. The reason why I'm doing what I'm doing looks a little bit different. Can, yeah. can you talk about how your why has changed over time and what that really means for you? Oh man, that's such a great, oh, such a great question, eh? So I accomplished all my dreams by the age of 25. <laughs> so the ball was low, baby. Wow. It was low. So when I got to college, I said, okay, I want to go back to my alma mater high school and I want to coach basketball and I want to teach back in Newport News, Virginia. So what ends up happening is I graduate. I take a year off from teaching. I'm just, I'm an IA at Washington GT Magnet School. The following year, I get my certification. I, you know what, I go home and I teach for a year. And then the second year, I look at my, um, Rhonda Bell, my mentoring teacher, and I tell her, look, I really want to coach basketball. Mm -hmm. She says, okay, I'm, I'm going to set you up to coach basketball. So she sets me with her husband to coach AAU girls basketball. Mm. And that entire, our record that summer was 0 
and maybe like 35. I mean, we lost every game. Right. <laughs> it it's third grade girls, uh, AAU basketball. We would lose like 45-1. <laughs> let me digress. So that fall, a head coaching varsity job opens up at Denby High School. So me with one summer of AAU experience, put on a suit, <laughs> goes to the school for an interview, and I did really well. Mm. So they gave me the JV job. Needless to say, all my goals are accomplished. And then yeah. I meet um, one student who would probably later on be in maybe another book about mentoring. His name was Jawan Williams. Jawan Davis, I'm sorry. <laughs> Jawan was about five foot ten in the uh, fourth grade. And he's an angry little guy and he's like punching walls and pissed off and stuff. And I established Boys Sports Club because I want to mentor him, but I don't want to mentor him by myself. I want to mentor him with all his buddies. So I start a mentoring group, all black boys that come from single parent homes. So suddenly something inside of me awakens mm. to where you know, I, I, I gained knowledge of self a long time ago, Yeah. but I did not want them to have to wait to get to college to obtain knowledge of self like I did. Yeah. So I started telling them about, you know, Africa and our past and that we were never meant to be drug dealers and just mm. rappers and athletes, that we were intellectuals, that there is no Pythagorean theorem without us. Yeah. So that takes me to a place where my old why solidifies mm. to where now I'm thinking I'm helping the 10 kids who are black and come from single parent homes in my school. What if I had a whole class full of kids who come from single parent households yeah. and I could have that type of influence? So when my wife at the time got her doctorate, I said, all right, I want to go to Chicago. So my why shifted from a more of a selfish thing mm -hmm. to me deciding that I wanted to um, dedicate the rest of my life to inner city education. Mm. And from there, once I found success in a classroom, I then decided, well, maybe I can help teachers get better. But then that shifted to eventually imagine my influence if I could be a great principal. And I could run a building of, three, at the time, 350 scholars, 25 teachers, and them having someone who loves them, cares about them, wants to see them succeed. And that's how my why kind of shifted. Yeah. And there's been detours here and there, right? But at the end of the day, um, from the second I stepped foot into Chicago, um, I have been dedicated to urban education and everywhere. Mm -hmm. I've gone. And um, I think the main reason behind that was tied back to mentoring. Because yeah. if I had never had that mentoring group, I'd probably still be in Newport News right now trying to become a varsity basketball coach <laughs> in my 14th year of education at Richmond Elementary. And may I also add, there's nothing wrong with that, because there's still like six or seven people who are there, still <laughs> teaching from when I was at Richmond Elementary back then. So. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's powerful, Lloyd. And I feel like, you know, a great point that you made too, when you say you accomplished all of your goals by 25, I don't think you're alone in that. 
I, I would I would probably argue that maybe sixty to eighty percent of people don't really think beyond college or don't and, and I could almost say the same for myself. Yeah. I wanted to have a business by twenty four. I wanted to play college football. I want to be in the world championship of public speaking. Every every dream that I've set forth has become a reality in my life. And it's, that's what happens when you set out dreams or you cast that vision, but you got to go get it and reset. And I feel like that's the part where a lot of folks forget is to reset that goal or to reset that standard for you. Absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 I agree 100%. You know, I think um, part of that is that when someone asks you, what do you want to be when you grow up and you say you want to be a teacher, now you're a teacher, mm. right? I mean, and then there's nothing wrong with that. But I think, you know, um, having strong black males in education in places of position and power makes a difference. It's just so important because they have to see you. The kids have to see you. They need to see you in your suit from time to time. They need to see you being in a position where you're telling people what to do or you're organized and you're doing the right things because if they, if they don't see that, they don't see that in school. You don't know when they are. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that's a real statement that, you know, I'm not going to apologize for. For sure. And you, and you don't have to, uh, for real, for real. You know, yeah. I think that really does carry us into our, our final kind of subject topic of restorative justice and equity. It's been the favorite topic here on the Dash podcast. And I can't remember now if it was the first or second episode, but you mentioned the restorative training you did up in Chicago. Yeah. I, I remember I asked you maybe a couple months ago what the person's name was. Man, I did my research. I did my digging. Um, did and you find it? I, I did. I did find okay. it. So what I what I didn't find the training. What I found was um, really the Chicago Public Schools um, Restorative Guide and Toolkit. I don't okay. know if you've seen that. A beautiful document. It's about 150 pages. I've digested it and internalized it. And it pretty much has... Um, I, I, well, let me back up. I feel like restorative justice and practices are kind of innate in even the conversation that we're having right now. Yeah. Because of our background and our experience, it's almost natural to help restore some of the broken social histories of our kids that they already have. But mm -hmm. this, um, this CPS uh, restorative toolkit, you know, it, it takes you through classroom restorative practices, restorative conversations, peer mediation, um, mm -hmm. tier one through three on the MTSS or RTI. It really walks you through those things. And it's even given me enough to where I can create a training for my student leaders and in service for educators based on this manual right here. You gotta I, let me get that. You gotta let me get look, that. Look, I shoot it to you. <laughs> look, this thing, this, this toolkit and guide, this is one of the best pieces of resources I have seen. It, it is like really laid out with sample questions. And I, I got you though. Yeah, I, you gotta you gotta let me get that. <laughs> I, I, I send it to you soon as we're done. Um right. from that point, I mean you you've been such a huge advocate for restorative justice and equity. Now yeah. I know that you've had some things on your heart and on your chest that you kind of wanted to get off as oh, well. Yeah, I uh I was blessed to go to Standards Institute uh by Unbound Ed. Um about a month and a half ago, and uh, the Mind Trust out of Indianapolis sent me there um, just for they. I had said I needed some help with academics, so their academic vice president, Practice Jones, sent me there. And I was I'm so grateful for that experience because for the first time in my life, I got to really kind of understand the link between academics and equity, mm. right? 
how low academic expectations are the second biggest, in my opinion, impediment to inner city school success or rural school success. Mm -hmm. It's not about the student. It's about you and me believing in the brilliance of our scholars mm. on an everyday consistent basis. And there were moments where I felt very emotional there because for so long I've been trying to convince people that the truth is, is that systematic white supremacy and racism is such a huge impediment to children of color truly being able to do well. And it's not about people with Klan robes running into the school and stopping you and taking your books away. No, that's not what it is. Implicit bias. What, what it is is when the book says or the standard says that you're supposed to be here. Mm. And I use my judgment to say, I'm actually going to plan and do work here for you. Mm. Because I don't believe you can do it. Wow. Wow. It's about me answering questions before you can answer and not giving you suitable wait time because I don't believe you can have the right answer. Mm. It's about me removing you from the classroom because your parent checked the box that says you speak Spanish at home. So you don't get exposed to the grade level standards. They put you in a separate setting. Mm. So you don't get exposed to the, to the, to the state standards. Yeah. It's about always placing boys into math and girls in the ELA when both can do the same thing. Yeah. It's those small microaggressions mm -hmm. that happen on a daily basis in schools that our scholars are internalizing and is destroying their spirit for what they really want to be in education and what they can truly achieve in a school or in a classroom. Mm -hmm. So for, for me, my heart opened up for the question of equity because I believe that equity is something that is gonna continue to be an impediment ultimately to school success until enough people have gone, done the research or experienced a conference like I did mm. to make a change in our communities. Because the truth is, is that, you know, and I want to use one tangible example. I, I, I've had teachers in the past, and even some today, who will say, gosh, I can't teach. The kids won't stop talking. Mm -hmm. Ma'am, they're talking because they want you to shut up. <laughs> they want you to give them a chance to share their brilliance. Amen. But you want to talk. You wanna, you wanna be the arbiter of all information and you wanna piecemeal it out and share it in chunks. You wanna lecture. You, yes, you wanna lecture. When you could give it to them, pose the higher order thinking questions, allow them to talk to each other, allow them to create and respond, allow them to lead the discussion. And I bet you won't have any classroom management issues then. Because mm -hmm. now they believe that you believe that they're brilliant and smart and beautiful and they can do anything in that classroom as long as um as as, as, you give as them the opportunity to believe in them yeah absolutely i mean that you know and again that that's something that just seems to make sense well 
for me, I remember growing up, I hated, I was the kid that didn't raise my hand. I'd raise my hand and talk at the same time because I don't got time to wait for that permission. Um, but like now as I'm teaching or doing my career development or speaking classes, I mean, it's all on the kids. I, I'll give you all an activity list. I'll yeah. get you started. But the rest of this, it's got to be led by you. And, and when you think about Lloyd Equity Restorative Practices, I was just telling uh, my last guest, Brandon, um, Wallace, he was telling me that um, <laughs> I was talking to him about how um, teachers come into the classroom with bias, baggage, and blind spots. Yes. And my first role was, was as an emotional coach for teachers, helping them understand emotional intelligence, how to communicate with kids or in, in peers for that matter. Where do you think, like, is that a part of equity? People understanding themselves emotionally and, and that self-awareness, is that part of equity as well? Understanding me so I can understand you? Oh my gosh, so much so. To the point where, you know, there was a slide in my, um, there was a slide in the training where they talked about, you know, before you can fix equity in a school, you have to convince 100% of the people there that there is an equity problem. Yeah. Yeah. In school, yeah. right? That your background, whether you're white, whether you're black, whether you're Asian, Hispanic, anything, gay, straight, anything, your previous bias is going to color your thinking until you are willing to accept it mm. and willing to do what's necessary to change mm. it. Mm. So, like, I think, in, in, in from what I experience, and I think because I've worked in um, inner cities for many years. You know, we get a lot of Teach for America teachers. <clears throat> so imagine being 22, 23 years old in a high school with 18, 19 year olds mm. that are African American, that are bigger than you, that are stronger than you in some cases, <laughs> right? And you, all you've ever heard is that on the east side of Indianapolis, it's scary. Or on the south side, it's scary. So you wonder why their classrooms lack control and management and different things like that. It's because they're scared. Wow. Wow. That is so true, Lloyd. <laughs> it's because they're scared. So true. And, and, and the facts are that, like, and look, I'm, I'm a big proponent of Teach for America. I love them, right? Mm -hmm. But the question here is, is this. My biggest challenge every year is to convince this person who's made straight A's their entire life that they don't know what they're talking about. Mm. No, seriously. And I'm, I'm, I won't get into specifics, but I there was it. a time where like, I remember being in a training and like looking at this, this, this young lady in the eyes, the entire training and say, listen, you need to listen to what we're saying. I know you think you know everything because you've never failed before, but you're going to yeah. fail here. Yeah. And it's going to be okay, but I need you to hear me when I say, when you fail, you need to come talk to us, right? Mm -hmm. So I went into a classroom and it's the first week of school and it's quiet, but there's kids laying on the floor reading books on a blanket. And I was like, there's no other blankets in all the other classrooms. And she was like, I know, I just wanted to have a relaxing space. Okay, but I'm telling you, you shouldn't do this. 
they're going to take this as weakness and they're going to turn on you. I really just want to create an ambiance, you know, turn the lights down low, everyone's going to be calm and we're learning. Okay. <laughs> and four months later, she was like, crying every day and coming in late and missing weeks of work, mm -hmm. because they did not find safety in the way she was running her classroom. Wow. Why was she wanting to dim the lights and have blankets, Trey? Mm. It's because she didn't want to deal with the, the aggression. She wanted yeah. everything to be calm. She wanted to dim it down. Relax. She wanted to dim it down. Mm. And wow. what the kids saw was, see oh, the saw. Yeah. You saw, if you don't care, you, we'll do the work, but uh, why we got to listen to you? You 22 years old, 23 mm. years old, yada, yada, yada. Nah, man. Mm. So. Nah. What I'm hearing is is conversely, um, I heard somebody say this. I think it was Brian Chris Reese was on the episode. He talked about how culture drives instruction. And, and even if I am a white teacher in an all-black school, it's yes. my job to immerse myself in your culture so that uh, we can be on the same page. In, but in, genuinely, though. But genuinely. Genuinely. That, that not, part, yes. And, and I think that's very important because they know the difference. Yeah, okay. they could read you like a book. Oh my gosh, don't do not see the thing is, is this when I never forget when I told a, a house student had missed three weeks of school and she was like, Yo, night for real. I know I've been messing up, but I really want to come back to school. My, my, my only reply was this You're always welcome. I love you. Pull up. Mm. <laughs> she screenshotted that message, posted it on Instagram and said, yo, my, I got the dopest principal in the yeah. world. He the only one I know would say, pull up. Mm -hmm. Cause it's genuine. Yeah. <laughs> when, when you see these principals trying to like Millie Rock and all that stuff, laughing and stuff, bruh, that ain't genuine. Yeah. They're not really respecting that. Yeah. You're making a mockery of our culture. Yes. Immersing yourself doesn't mean perpetrating. Exactly. You know like, live it respectfully. Like, you know, and, and I think, you know, and this is what I, I have told people this before. It's like, don't, don't, don't put yourself in a position where we laughing at you because you're trying to do some extra stuff yeah. that like, ain't in your lane to do. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, yep. I like it, Lord. And what was that? Tell me again, that training that um, they sent you to in Indianapolis. What yes. was um, Okay, Standards Institute. And they ain't, gonna, they ain't paying me no money, but it helped change my practices. <laughs> because what, what came out of it, was me coaching teachers far more effectively mm. because I was able to frame my action steps around equity rather than I'm your boss and I tell you so. Wow. So Standards Institute, uh, hosted by Unbound Ed, and they're having one on the West Coast in July on, in Las Vegas, and they're gonna be back in Orlando, Florida, I think in June. Okay, okay, so it's like, it's like a conference type of situation? Conference, man. Gotcha. And, Man, I, I promise you, it was. It had to be like two thousand people there, mm -hmm. and most big conferences like that, nah. But you know, you meet Paul Gorski. Um, he's a, he was an outstanding speaker, and you know, people who really like. Gosh, I want I almost want to peel through some of these speakers for you real quick, but I ain't gonna take up all your time. But, but every person who took the main stage was five star, unquestioned. Yeah. yeah. Just, just blow your mind. I think one of my favorite activities was, you know, people talk about Black History Month, right? 
and who we study during Black History Month or who we study during Hispanic History Month, where it's just this carousel of the same safe people. Frederick Douglass. Yes. If you're safe, you get to be in the carousel, right? But you don't hear about, you know, the people who ran Black Wall Street in Kansas City and the massacre that happened there. You know, you don't get to hear about, you know, how Cardi G. Woodson, a member of Omega Sci-Fi, wrote the first Black History Manuals. all that. You know what I'm saying? You don't don't hear those stories in the same way. And I think part of the going back to that equity piece, like equity is not having a uh, all world's dinner, inviting your families for one night and saying, okay, well, we're an equitable school, we do that. Mm. It's not having a black history program one evening after school. It's not about like a wax museum one day. Those are good things. But equity lives and breathes within the school because it's the way people think. It's the way that people watch the words they say because they understand that they have power. You know, just like Proverbs, you know, and I think I've said this to you a bunch of times, you know, Proverbs 18, 22, um, the power of life and death is in the tongue. Mm-hmm. And like our words matter. And um, the question of equity is important because once you start to realize that we're operating within a system of um, racism in education, and that we're still teaching in a very Eurocentric manner, that you can then have the power to change things and have actual great powerful change. So even at at Charles A. Tinley, where we've had some struggles this year, academically and stuff like that, when I began to frame my coaching in a more equitable way, um, the impact was immediate where I had middle schoolers who were teetering at about 10, 15% proficiency for most of the year to the last cycle before we went on quarantine was 58%. Hmm. Almost immediate impact because the teachers were able to see that the practices of show calls, the practices of um, allowing scholars to like ping pong each other and talk through the problem rather than you standing up there and explaining it to them was already having an amazing impact. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that so much, man. Hopefully they get out here to the south. Hopefully uh, Atlanta, uh, Charlotte, one of them areas, man. We might Orlando, be- man. That's 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 a little that's that's kind of far out the way, <laughs> folks. In, hey, uh, the hey, I'm gonna tell you something, man. Real, real talk. You look up an Orlando ticket. Disney must be supplementing Allegiant Air, man, because mm. I think I got there for like sixty bucks, man. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> it's probably not too far to drive either. Well, Lloyd, man, look, I I, I so appreciate you as always. Congratulations on the new book, man, out on Amazon right now. I'm blessed. My life story told through mentorship, um, another great equity and restorative justice conversation. You know this isn't going to be the last one. Do you have have any more comments, Lloyd, before we go? No, man, I just appreciate you, man. I love you and your platform. Of course, I subscribe on iTunes. Uh, Everyone, please follow me at Lloyd the Outlier on um, Twitter and at Lloyd Duh, D-A, outlier on Instagram. Um, and, you know, just, just continue to make history. And I hope that everyone got something out of our discussion on mentoring and equity today. And um, looking forward to just continuing to be great and let's just keep this movement going. Absolutely, absolutely. As always, thank you for your time, man, and your continued help and support, even when we're not online, man. We, we're talking frequently and Um, Like you said, thought partners is a great word. So I appreciate you for coming on again. And I appreciate you all for listening to the Dash podcast. Go check Lloyd out on social media. 
find this book on Amazon.com. And while you're at it, go ahead and visit TreyGamers.com and do the same thing for Every Decision Counts and subscribe to The Dash Podcast. We will see you next time. This is The Dash.